You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. We're not in Kansas anymore. Have you had a moment like that in your life? It's that expression from the movie or the book, right, where you find yourself in a whirlwind, You find yourself in a context, in a situation maybe where you're disoriented, where life is difficult, and uh, you you may not have said it in those words, we're not in Kansas anymore, but you, you felt it, right? You felt like you had no idea which way was up or which way was down. I want to tell you about uh, a moment where I had a we're not in Kansas anymore moment. Some of you might uh, know this last October, October 2022, I went to the Philippines and uh, had the honor of being able to speak at a youth camp on two different islands. And on the second island, uh, we shared this in the update after we got back, but I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about it today, is a a typhoon hit us, uh, passed right by the island that we were on, Typhoon Paang. It was quite a serious tropical storm. Uh, caused $235 million worth of damages, 160 uh, fatalities, uh, and it was, it was serious, you know, sustained winds of 70 miles an hour. And uh, the typhoon hit just as we were starting our second camp. And so we were at camp, a couple hundred youth students from all over uh, the island, and uh, it was one of those situations where there was flooding, the power went out, the plumbing went out, and we had a couple hundred students, and the roads weren't safe enough to send people home. And even if we did send people home, many of those students uh, lived in bamboo houses that they weren't sure if their house was even gonna be there for them when they got back. And so somehow, Uh, We not only kept all the students at camp, but we kept running the youth camp while we were there. And uh, it was one of those kind of crazy things, and by God's grace, like the second night after about 24 hours of the power being out, we were singing about God's power, and the power went back on, and it was amazing. And uh, my voice was super raspy from not having a microphone and trying to just like, you know, uh, amplify my own voice. And then on the way back, it was hit or miss whether we were going to be able to make our flights because uh, there were really two routes to drive back to the airport. One was through the mountains, and there was mudslides, and the roads were closed. The other route was near the coast where there's dozens of bridges you have to go over. And we knew at least one of the bridges was down. And we drove and it was raining and dark. And we had to drive to the bridge. We got out and we had to walk because it wasn't safe for vehicles, but it was apparently safe enough for people to walk across. We walk across the bridge and, uh, and we walk across and we had to find someone that we don't know to give them money to take, them, take us the rest of the way to the airport. And one of our team members, I won't say who, was throwing up the whole time. And it was insane. It was insane. It, was one of the, it, was, it will go down in history as one of the craziest youth camp experiences I've ever had. I hope it is the craziest one I've ever had. And day by day, more honestly, moment by moment, in a situation like that, we were constantly asking this question, what's the plan? What's the plan? Something new would happen. What's the plan now? 
Things would change. What's the plan now? And we, when we find ourselves in these disorienting moments, we find ourselves asking, what's the plan? We need direction. We need to know what to do next. Do you ever ask God that question? What's the plan? Because you're in a moment, you're in a season of life where things are crazy. You're in a storm. Maybe the last few years, just culturally, in our world, feels a little bit like a storm where things are turned upside down. You ever wonder what God is up to? You ever wonder why God hasn't answered that prayer yet? Why has God allowed suffering and storms to hit your life? You find ourselves asking that question, what's the plan? Maybe even doubting if God even has a plan. If he's in control, why would he let all of these things happen? And when we are in those moments of disorientation and difficulty, we need two things. We need direction, and we need encouragement. And that's exactly what the prophet Jeremiah is going to offer us today. From our teaching text, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29, uh, the book of Jeremiah. If you have a Bible, open to Jeremiah 29. We'll start off in verse 1, and then we'll get to kind of the meat of the text here in just a few moments. But the chapter starts out like this, Jeremiah 29.1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Last week, we kicked off the series Exiles by looking at Josiah. He was the last good king of Judah. And he had a a period of about 31 years of national reforms and revival. It was the last somewhat high point in the history of Judah before the Babylonian exile. Well, here in Jeremiah 29, we're in it. The people have been exiled. There's three important dates, if you like history, three important dates. You can read about all three of these in 2 Kings uh, chapters 24 and 25. But when we talk about the Babylonian exile, when the people of Judah were exiled, really there's three kind of different phases to the exile. These are three different military campaigns that King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, he, he came up against Jerusalem. The first one, It was in 605 BC with King Jehoiakim. Can you say Jehoiakim? You're going to hear a lot of great names for your pets today. (laughs) Got a little salamander, a goldfish, Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was the second son of Josiah. So this isn't that far away from the rule of Josiah. And Jehoiakim rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, It was really a world power fight between Egypt and Babylon. And uh, Babylon won. And so Jehoiakim, his allegiances were more towards Egypt, and and he didn't really like Babylon, and so uh, he refused to pay uh, the the taxes towards Babylon, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that, and he sent different different militaries to attack them. And in this very first one, uh, the best and the brightest were exiled. So what Nebuchadnezzar did is he gathered together all the nobility in Jerusalem. This is where Daniel and his companions. This is in 605, that's when they were sent off to kind of be assimilated into Babylonian culture. Now, just a number of years later, Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, can you say Jehoiachin? I told you, it's crazy. It's it's so confusing. When you're reading it, you got to read slowly because you got Jehoiakim. Then Jehoiachin is in charge, and he's only king for a few months 
before Nebuchadnezzar comes again and he lays siege to Jerusalem. And this time it's more of a serious military attack. And at this point in time, in 597 BC, only the poorest of the land are left. So the very first deportation, it was just the best and the brightest they left. And in the second one, it's pretty much anyone who can make the journey to Babylon. It's all the military, it's, 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 all, it's all the just the average people, the common people, and it's only the poorest people and the prophet Jeremiah who are left in Jerusalem. And then a number of years later, about a decade later, King Zedekiah, who was Jehoiachin's uncle, his, he was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, his name was changed to Zedekiah. 586 is when we usually talk about the Babylonian exile, this is usually the date we're talking about. Because in 586, Zedekiah had been rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian rule, so much so that he laid siege to Jerusalem again, and this is when the city walls were torn down, Buildings were torched, the temple is destroyed, and Jerusalem is decimated. This is that picture of Jerusalem in flames, okay? So those are three dates, and when we talk about the Babylon exile, we're really talking about this whole 20, 30-year period. It was, it was a decline into exile. What, what we're, we're at in Jeremiah 29 is Jeremiah the prophet is left in Jerusalem after that deportation of 597, and he sends a letter to the newly exiled population of Jews. Does that make sense? So this isn't after the burning of the city, it's after the, the first uh, deportation. And even though it, you know, the city is still somewhat intact, the Jews are still saying this line, we're not in Judah anymore. And they're still faced with an incredible amount of challenges. How are we supposed to worship God when we're separated from the temple? Is God still in control? I thought this was our promised land that God promised to our forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What about the covenants? What about everything that God has done in Jerusalem? And now we're isolated. We're surrounded by our enemies. They killed my family members, right? I've lost all my, my family home, all my possessions. Now I'm enslaved in a foreign land. So even though... The city is not destroyed yet. It's still a very difficult time if you're exiled in 597 BC. We're not in Judah anymore. Psalm 137.4 really gets to the emotion behind what it would have been like to be one of these exiles. They write in Psalm 137, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're surrounded by... Babylonians taunting them. Let me hear one of your worship songs. Let me hear, let me hear a little jingle. Do a little dance for me. And the, the people are there full of mourning and grief. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And beyond just the emotion of Psalm 137, I think that question is a very important modern ecclesiological question which is a question the church must wrestle with, how shall we worship God in a foreign land? How shall we worship God in a land that is increasingly resistant or in some cases even hostile to the one true God? We must learn how to worship God in a world where we feel like 
outsiders. Now, I'm not here to pretend that modern-day America is at all as extreme as it would have been to be one of those exiles living in Babylon, and we shouldn't pretend it is, okay? We shouldn't pretend it is. Uh, Even in today, many people, about half of people in America would still check a box on a survey claiming that they're some version of Christians, and yet Barna has shown that only about 10% of Gen Z or younger is what they call resilient disciples. So even though people might claim to be a Christian, they have some kind of Christian heritage because they grew up in America and many people were Christian in America at one point in time, the younger people in our nation aren't, it's not so much the label of Christian as it is the true belief of what it means to be a Christian, or maybe even more dangerous in our culture is to actually live like a Christian. It's fine for you to spend an hour on Sunday wherever you want, worshiping whoever you want, but you better not bring those ideas into your life. You better not actually live like what you believe. That's what it means to be in exile in our land. John Mark Comer calls it a cognitive uh, he, he, call, he calls it a cognitive minority in his book, Live No Lies. He says this, we are what sociologists call a cognitive minority, meaning as followers of Jesus, our worldview and value system and practices and social norms are increasingly at sharp odds with those of our host culture. And so it, it might be fine for you, you know, on your social media profile to say that you're a Christian, but you better not call someone out for a behavior or a belief that you think is wrong, right? Don't infringe on someone else's beliefs. And so we need, just as much as the exiles in 597 needed direction and encouragement, we need direction and encouragement today. And that's what Jeremiah does. He sends a letter to the newly exiled population, and essentially his letter is, here's the plan. Here's the plan. Jeremiah 29, verse 4, if you're there with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, there's two... uh, opposite errors that we often make when it comes to being a cognitive minority or, or trying to influence the culture or figure out what does it look like for us to be in the world but not of the world. Have you heard that saying, right? It's this tension that Christians live in. The first opposite extreme, and I, I think both of these two are errors, is separation. This might be a little bit of review. We've, we've looked at these uh, before, but separation is to be somewhat like a turtle, Right? You're in a day, you feel like, oh, the world out there is so dangerous, and what do we do? We go into the, we go into the shell. Someone get the boards. Let's, let's board up the church doors and windows. Don't let anyone in, right? And, and we can do this. We can kind of trap ourselves in a Christian bubble of our own making, 
of our own design. And so you only listen to Christian music, only read Christian books, only watch Christian movies, only drink Christian coffee at a Christian coffee shop, only eat Chick-fil-A, only shop at Christian grocery stores, only go to Christian schools, only have Christian friends. A neighbor moves in and they're a Christian and you become their friends, but the person on the other side is not a Christian, so you don't get to know them. Now, I'm not here to speak against Chick-fil-A, all right? I'm a Chick-fil-A one member. I think I've reached silver status last year. If you, it, like, I, there's nothing necessarily even wrong with having great Christian community or going to a Christian school. I'm not here to speak against, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not here to speak against any of those things. But we can easily fall into the trap of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, salt that has lost its taste. Jesus' point with calling us to be the salt of the earth is we're in the earth. We're in the world. We're there. We're rubbing shoulders with the world. Bob Goff says it like this. Most of us spend our entire lives avoiding the people that Jesus spent his whole life engaging. Are you in a Christian bubble, a Christian maybe prison of your own making? Separation is not the answer for exiles. So what's the other extreme? Again, this is another error that we can make. It's not separation, it's syncretism. Can you say syncretism? Syncretism is blending of religions. It's blending of worldviews. It's blending of faith. It's a smoothie. And so you might still go to church and you might still identify as a Christian, but ultimately your life really looks more like the world. It's just kind of taking a few Jesus things and a few worldly things and putting it in a blender and blending it all up. And what happens is you might have started as going to seek and save the lost on mission with Jesus. You're, you're in the world, but maybe you're a little bit too much in the world. We're called to love the world, but not fall in love with worldliness. And so you started going to seek and to save the lost, but what happens is you, you end up losing yourself among the lost. And we see this, I, I think maybe even a more dangerous posture uh, that, we, that we fall into. I see this one a little bit more than separation, syncretism in our day. And same, same passage in Matthew chapter five, why are you hiding that light under a basket? We don't wanna be salt that's lost its taste, we don't wanna be light that's hiding under a basket. Neither one of those postures will do if we're going to learn how to thrive in exile. But there's a third way and it also starts with the letter S, conveniently. It's not separation, it's not syncretism, it's, it's to be sent. It's to be sent. Jesus in John 17, 18. This is where we get that idea, in the world but not of the world. I, I would actually phrase it a little bit differently. John 17, 18, Jesus says, as you, as the Father sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You realize Jesus, uh, he says, I don't want them to be of the world, but he never says they should just exist in the world. He actually sends us into the world. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go, go, we're sent. Are you realizing your identity as a follower of Jesus is to be someone who is commissioned, who is sent? And in fact, it's, theologically, this is huge. Because especially in the Babylonian exile, the people, it's like mind-blowing for Jeremiah to say these words, that God has sent you, not taken by Nebuchadnezzar, not 
captives, not victims. The Lord your God, numerous times in our teaching text for today, he declares that God, everyone say it, he sent you. Not taken, sent. We need to to lose the victim mentality, and I hear it. I hear it. Man, did you see that legislation? We're losing, we're losing our kid. We, like, we, we, sometimes we can get so caught up with how we're losing ground or we're losing the culture wars or we're losing the whatever, and we, we have this almost victim mentality as Christians in culture where we're just, we're just frustrated, we're upset. And I just gotta tell you, if that's you, lose the victim mentality. Are we people of victory or what? There's a resurrection on Easter Sunday. The victory is already won. We know how the story ends. Lose the victim mentality and embrace a missionary mentality. You've been sent by God to go into the world and make disciples. And we've got to ditch the victim mentality and embrace the fact that we are sent. Now, what Jeremiah does is he gives three instructions, if you're taking notes, three specific sets of instructions. If you're asking the question, what do I do in exile? That's what the people are wondering. What do we do? That's the first thing they need, is they need direction. Here's three directions. The first one is put down roots in Babylon. Put down roots. He says, build houses, plant vineyards, and multiply. Essentially, what he's saying is you're not going anywhere anytime soon. You're going to be there for a while, so don't bother looking for a rental. Get some property, get some real estate, and build something. Build something that's going to be there long after you're gone. I believe that our church, God has had our church in a season of building, and I love the next two words, plant and multiply. I think that's where God is leading us, to plant a church, to send people, and to multiply. Now, he says to plant vineyards, to plant gardens. Now, this is crazy. Planting a seed is not a short-term payoff, is it? So he's, part of this, he's saying, you're going to plant gardens even if you never taste the freedom of going back and being part of the remnant that returns, you can still actually taste fruit in exile. God can still grow good things for you to enjoy, that you can actually thrive, you can flourish in exile. And then he says to multiply, to multiply. Because if the people say, we're only gonna be here a short time, let's not do any crazy things, let's not betroth our our children to get married, let's not, you know, let's just try to survive, right? We can so easily not, even if we're not in a victim mentality, we can be in a survival mentality. No one make any sudden moves, right? Because we're just trying to make it through the day. And he says, no, 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 settle in. Plant your roots. Multiply, because God will bring people back. And the hope is that there's more people to bring back than there are that were exiled. Go ahead and multiply. As the church, we need to be careful not to leave the very place that God has called us to lead. God wants us to be leaders in culture, leaders in our city, leaders in society. And so often we're just trying to survive or we have this victim mentality. Don't evacuate the place that God has sent you into. That's number one. Put down roots. Number two, if you're taking notes, pray for Babylon. Everyone say, pray for Babylon. Notice, not pray against Babylon. 
This is one of the only times I believe explicitly in the Old Testament that God's chosen people are commanded to pray for their enemies. And they are legitimate enemies, right? They killed their people. They're going to burn their city. They took them as slaves. They are enemies of God's people. Like, this is probably emotionally difficult for the people to wrestle with Jeremiah's instructions. Pray for them. Pray for your captors. And yet, it is eerily similar to the words that Jesus would teach us in Matthew 5.44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Because here's what's going to happen. The more that you pray for your enemies, the pray for the people who are wishing you harm, treating you poorly, pray for the people who are belittling you for your faith, the more that you pray for those people, your heart is actually moved towards compassion for those people. You'll start to care about them. You'll start to love them more. And uh, you're, not praying that, you're not praying that necessarily that God would bless them when they're doing ungodly things necessarily. Good for them. You're not putting a stamp of approval on their life, their behavior, their belief. But you're praying that God would help them. That God would bless them. That God would comfort them. And uh, when things start to go well for those people you will be able to know that it is your God who has actually helped those people from your prayers. And it leads to opportunities, seeds for the gospel. That's the second thing, the second instruction. The third instruction is to bless Babylon. To bless Babylon. It's not enough for you to just privately pray for the welfare of Babylon. Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. Are you a good citizen? Do you contribute to the well-being of Boise? Do you contribute to the well-being of your neighborhood? This word welfare is actually the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word for peace. And it's a very dense theological word. It means well-being, contentment, wholeness, health, prosperity, safety, and rest. Seek the peace of the city. And the reality is, I don't know if Christians are known in America anymore as being people of blessing. Judgmental, sure. Hypocritical, probably. But I don't know if we are known as a people seeking the welfare of others. Are we helpful? Are we serving? Are we loving? Would your neighborhood even miss you if you moved away? That's what it means, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. That you're actively bringing good and blessing because you know that every good and perfect gift comes from God and you're distributing God's goodness. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. Uh, The reality is we need to be people who are willing to get involved and to bless to seek the welfare of the city. Philip Ryken, Old Testament scholar, says this, though. I think this is very important for the ultimate act of blessing that we can do. He says this, by themselves, random acts of kindness cannot bring enduring peace. So if you want to see shalom peace in our city, it's great to pay for the person's Starbucks in the line behind you. That's great. Keep doing that. That alone will be unable, that is insufficient to fully transform a culture. Random acts of kindness cannot bring enduring peace. The only basis for real and lasting shalom is the work of Christ on the cross. Amen? Amen. The city 
cannot be at peace until the city knows Jesus Christ and him crucified. So you want to know the ultimate act of blessing that you can do is you can be that ambassador of reconciliation. You can share your faith with love and truth and kindness and grace. You can invite someone to church. You can get into spiritual conversations. You can go one step further from praying for someone to praying with someone. You can engage them. You can entertain their questions. You can genuinely listen to them because let's be honest, in this digital age, when was the last time that someone actually looked them in the eyes and listened to them for 20 minutes, right? The ultimate act of blessing is to share the blessing of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can bring you enduring shalom peace in your soul. And I'm here to tell you, if you've never received the gospel of Jesus Christ and you feel like there's something missing, you've been chasing these endless pursuits and they've been leaving you hollow, Paul in Romans 5.1 says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that can bring you enduring fulfillment and satisfaction. You want to receive eternal life. You want to have joy and have it abundantly. You have to receive the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ. Declare that he's your Lord and Savior. The reality is Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again in victory, and he invites you to experience a new life in him. You can have peace and peace today by putting your faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. I want to invite you today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, would you respond? Do not harden your hearts. Would you respond in faith? Pray and ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life. And this year, I would encourage you, I want to challenge you to get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to go all in in your faith, to declare it. And if you want to learn more about baptism, you can find out more at our website, hillcityboise.org slash Baptism, But those are the three things that we're going to do. We're going to put down roots, you're going to pray, and you're going to bless. Jeremiah is going to continue these instructions. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70, everyone say 70. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, plans for shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of those just all-time popular Old Testament Bible verses. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare, plans for prosperity and not for evil. A couple notes on this, though. A couple really important notes on this uh, so that we read it accurately. Because this is a promise from Scripture, and we want to embrace this promise. We want to embrace the fullness of what it means. The first thing is that when we read 29.11 in our hyper-individualistic society, often we read that word you as me, don't we? And we kind of put our name there. For I know the plans I have for Josh, right? We kind of put our names there. And we actually forget that Jeremiah is not writing an individual letter to one exile. Who's he writing to? All of them. 
So it would be better to say, I know the plans I have for y'all if you're in the South, <laughs> right? And if you want to embrace the fullness of this promise, you have to recognize, it, this isn't to say that God doesn't have a purpose for your individual life or plans for your individual life, but this promise in 2911 is us. Here's how I would say it. God's plan for me is found in God's plan for us. God's plan for me as an individual is actually found only when I'm integrated in God's community, in the people that God is building. And this is why it's so important. God's not just creating you know, uh, individual Christians. He's creating a people. He's creating the church. And I want to invite you to get involved in our church, not just to attend our church, but to actually get involved in community, to get to know people to pray with people. There's so many one another's in scripture that you cannot do on a Sunday morning alone. Sign up for a life group. Sign up for a serving team. Contribute. Don't just be a consumer. Be a contributor to the, the people that God is bringing here. Disciple someone. Mentor someone. You know, be mentored. Be discipled by someone. If you, if maybe you've been asking that question. Now, what's God's plan for me? What's God's plan for me? What's God's plan for me? But you've actually been isolated from the church you want to find God's plan for you? It's only really going to be realized in God's plan for everyone. Say it. Us. Get involved in community. God is not just building people, individual people. He's building a church. And the second thing that happens when we read Jeremiah 29, 11 is we read it with our, not just our individualistic modern lens, we read it with our instantaneous modern lens, don't we? We are very, very impatient. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper. Okay, when's that gonna happen? <laughs> Tomorrow, Monday morning? The preacher just preached on it. So Monday morning, waiting for that prosperity, waiting for that welfare. Do you remember what verse 10 said? After how many years? Yeah, 70 is a long time. I'm not 70 years old. I know that's hard to believe. It's a long time. Here's the point. God works on his own timetable. He works on his own timetable. And so, yes, God's ultimate plan is to bless the people and to bring back a remnant. But many of the people that Jeremiah wrote these words to would live and die in Babylon. And that's difficult. That's not a modern microwave, super fast Wi-Fi way that we read it. We read, God's going to give you prosperity when? Tomorrow. And the reality is, there were false prophets. Jeremiah is actually, part of the reason he's writing this letter is he's speaking against false prophets who are among the people. One of them is named Hananiah. You can read about this in Jeremiah 28. False prophets were saying things like, don't worry about this exile. It's only going to last two years. And Jeremiah is like, how about 35 times longer than what those guys are saying? Are you willing to submit to God's plans if they're 35 times longer than your timetable? The reality is, we must beware of false prophets or false preachers who only tell you what you want to hear and be willing to be challenged by the truth of God's word. Here's the good news about God working things out in his own timetable. By definition, the fact that God has plans means that he's not done working out those plans. He's still working. He's not finished. 
behind the scenes, even when it seems like you're in exile and everything's hopeless and there's a typhoon and you know you got bad news and you're, you're praying and your prayer hasn't been answered, your prayer hasn't been answered yet. God's, whatever God is doing, he's not finished doing it. He's still working. And so the ultimate message of Jeremiah 29, we already looked at what do I do, right? We looked at the directions, but here's the encouragement. Everything is going to be okay. Everything's gonna be okay. Hear these words as if you were just freshly deported and put in Babylon. Maybe a family member or two died back in Jerusalem. You've lost everything. You spent your whole life building a nice house in Jerusalem. It's gonna burn in 10 years. You've worshiped in the temple and all the gold and the beauty and all of that. It's gonna be ransacked. It's gonna be destroyed. Some of you will never return, is what Jeremiah is saying. Everything's gonna be okay. You're surrounded by your enemies. People who in your heart right now, you hate those people. Everything is gonna be okay. You're gonna have to get creative. How should we sing to the Lord in a a foreign land? How do we worship without the temple? Everything's gonna be okay. That's the message of Jeremiah 29. It's not instantaneous. It's not all at once. It's not just even for me as an individual. It's for God's people. Jesus says he will build his church. And if you choose to join him in his church, to participate, God says to you, everything is gonna be okay. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So I just wanna encourage you, maybe this season, maybe this week is one of those, we're not in Kansas anymore. Last few years have been like that. You don't know which way is up, which way is down. You're disoriented, it's difficult. You feel a little bit more like an exile right now. I just wanna encourage you to keep seeking the Lord with all your heart. Keep seeking him with all your heart because that's a promise. When you seek him with all your heart, you will find him. Put down those roots, not in Babylon, but in Boise. Pray for your neighbors, pray for your neighborhood. Bless the city. Look for ways to get involved and trust God that everything is going to be okay. Amen. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.